evening, and welcome to episode 64 of The Winning Agenda. Tonight, our panellists include 2014 national champion Jesse Marshall. Hello. 2015 regional top eight competitor Hollis Echo. What's going on, guys? And I'm your host, Brian Holland. Every now and then, this podcast affords us the opportunity to do something really cool. This episode is no exception. Our guest tonight is someone so integral to Netrunner that without people like him, we would pretty much not have a show. I'm not just talking about how he's robbed Hollis of the coveted Best Dressed Man and Netrunner title either. <laughs> please give <laughs> please give a very warm winning agenda welcome to Android Netrunner lead developer, Mr. Damon Stone. How are you, Damon? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Uh, well, I'm a little cold here. It's, it's early on this side of the planet, so I'm not sure if I should be complaining about the cold to <laughs> someone who I think is in Minnesota at the moment, though. Yeah, St. Paul. It's kind of ridiculous outside right now. Um, so, Damon, most, most people know who you are, but for those of our listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with you, could you briefly explain what it is you do at FF? Um, I am the lead developer for Android Netrunner. Uh, I come up with the concepts for each uh, product in this game line, and then I do the initial um, design of uh, all the mechanics and card abilities. And at this particular point, I'm doing pretty much all of the development also, which means all of the playtesting that goes on, all the alterations of cards as the feedback comes in from testers uh, all over the planet. And uh, then I turn it over to my cohort, Eric Dahlman, who is the uh, lead producer, who actually creates all the digital files um, that will then go to our production department to uh, get internationalized and then see print. Is... Is Eric the primary person that, you, that is your go-to for like final uh, final decisions on things that the R and D team uh, works on? Like, how does that work as far as I guess the the pyramid of how things disseminate to your your uh, your minions? Minions, if only <laughs> banana. Uh, if only I, I, I. But I'm not really sure what you're what you're asking there. Like, who has the final say on the stuff that I hand over? Is that what you're looking yeah, for? Yeah. Um, actually the, the final say comes from our, uh, we have what we call our gold mastering process, which is essentially the executives will sit down and take a look at everything that has gone through numerous checks and balances, um, some of which I'm included in, some of which I'm not included in, and then they have the final say about what gets printed, how many get printed, you know, whether or not they like this particular piece of art or if the box art or the package art is something that they are not a fan of like they literally have the very last say in everything like nope this needs to be pushed over by three pixels to the left in regards to like art like i mean they they're they're masterful um and that's headed up by christian t peterson uh the ceo of uh ffg so, Damon, this past Friday you dropped what was perhaps the biggest bombshell in the history of Netrunner organized play. Um, I'm talking about the NAPD Most Wanted list. Uh, before we get into details about the cards in the list, why did you feel something like the Most Wanted list was needed at this point in the game? Um, well, honestly, it's not so much of this point in the game. Um, it has been generally understood that there have been some problematic cards from early on in the days uh, that have been skewing uh, both design and play uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, we have tried to put out cards that could act as uh, buffers, some things that would act as answers in hopes that players would embrace them uh, more fully to help balance things out. But 
you know, those are those are essentially crossing your fingers and and wishing that the metagame is going to take you know potential tools and try new things and move away from certain things, or will take certain uh, answer cards and use them uh, to help balance out some cards that are overly strong or have just a higher level of efficacy than other cards, um, or in some cases, just entire deck types. Um, but we can't control the players and what choices they're going to make. So when the when the players come up, uh, I have three things when I'm meeting with players face-to-face uh, and those that hunt me down on Facebook and Twitter that are the most common <laughs> things that are said to me which is, when are we getting a restricted list? Why is this card overpowered? Um, or, ultimately, why is this card underpowered? And the, I love Netrunner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we do love Netrunner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it, just about everybody who comes up to me either starts off or finishes with that, but rarely is that the sole statement. Like, hey, thanks yeah. a lot. I really love the game. It's fantastic. Don't change anything. It is well above and beyond uh, 60-70% people complaining about a card or it's just flat out asking when we are going to do something that is going to rein in some cards that are um, creating uh, ripples in the meta uh, okay. and have been so for a while. Uh, in terms of this particular method of doing so, uh, why did you choose to go with this approach rather than, say, uh, reprinting the core set where a lot of these biggest problem cards seem to come from um, and perhaps waiting for some of the others to rotate out? Um, is a core set reprint something we're likely to see or is this sort of has this addressed it from well, the point we're, of view? We're constantly reprinting the core set. Like, I couldn't even begin to tell you what number of reprint of the core set we're on um, but I would be shocked if it was any number less than six. Um, I mean, the game is, you know, wildly popular. Oh, no, I'm, I mean, say, re-releasing the core set. A, new, oh, like, like a, a core set 2.0 sort of thing. Yeah. That is a decision so far above my pay grade that I couldn't even begin <laughs> to tell you. Um, I mean, like, you can just think about what the... Uh, actually, I'm not sure how familiar you are with their other LCGs, but the internet also broke uh, when we announced that we were going to be doing a 2.0 version of Agot. Um, you know, the the cards work. You know, the game is essentially the same, um, but there has you know been some very clear. Okay, we've learned a lot since when this was created, and there are some problems, and we've been patching these problems for a really long time in an attempt to balance things and keep it growing and keep it going. Um, and the game is starting to collapse underneath its own weight and we need to, you know, we need to essentially reboot the entire thing. Um, and yeah, the internet totally broke with that. And we don't want to have that same kind of situation. So anything that involved changing the core set would require an excessive amount of planning um, an excessive amount of testing. Like, there's just a whole lot of things that would have to happen, and none of those decisions about able to do it or not come to me. Like, I can't just walk into my, uh, into my boss's office or, um, you know, into Christian's office or Michael Hurley's office and go, hey, you know what? The course set's got some stuff in it that's a little problematic. Let's just redo it. 
Okay. Like, like yeah. that, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that would not be a conversation that is likely to go the way that I want it to. First to be like, what are you doing in my office? Um, you know, go make an appointment. Cool. So you've, uh, you've chosen to go with this direction instead of a restricted list? Well, I, we have chosen to go in this direction instead of a restricted list. And the reason why is that a restricted list works really well for AGOT. Um, it worked really well for Call of Cthulhu, where the problem was much more along the lines of very specific card combinations. And so by putting multiple cards on the restricted list that are part of a combination, you can just break up the combo. It's like, oh, there's this combination that these three cards leads to an oppressive game environment. Great. Let's put two out of those three on there, and the combo is just completely broken. Now, you've banned the combo without having to ban cards. In some cases where it's like, hey, this card is just amazingly powerful, and so is this card, and so is this card, and so this card, and all being in the same faction allows for this faction to be overwhelmingly dominant. Well, you put a couple of those on there, and then they're forced to pick and choose, because the restricted list allows for you to choose one card by name and allow it in your deck up to, you know, the maximum quantity allowable, which is three for most of the LCGs. But doing that with Netrunner, I think, is just very artificial and, you know, frankly, inelegant. We already have a system in place to manipulate deck design. You know, once it became clear that, you know, a significant number of our players who I was interacting with were looking for something and that a number of the executives were also believing that something really had to happen. I mean, you know, when 60% of a field is dealing with two decks per side at, you know, any given national or world championship event for the last couple of years, there's, there's a bit of stagnation. Um, and when you take a look at those, those decks, even across factions, you're seeing again and again and again the same cards being added regardless of what faction they're in. It was generally felt that something needed to happen to uh, rebalance that rotation was not going to happen fast enough. Lucas and I had, when it became clear that rotation was going to be a thing that we were going to do for our LCGs, had discussed with uh, Michael Hurley, who's our VP of, essentially our uh, VP of R&D product development, about the, pro about the thought of having us rotate on a faster schedule. And he, you know, he researched it and he talked it over with the other executives and, um, they felt strongly. And after their explanation, I have to agree that having multiple, uh, multiple timetables for rotation amongst our game lines was not an ideal solution. It made the entire product category much harder to understand. Um, it made going from one LCG to another much more difficult. Like we, they, they certainly acknowledged that, you know, each game is different and it has its own needs, but they felt that early rotation in an attempt to fix balance issues was not the answer. And I ha I have to agree. Just trying to rotate something on a faster schedule is no more equivalent to just banning, you know, multiple cards. Frankly, as a player myself, I want my cards to be legal for as, you know, as long as, as tenables, as long yeah, as yeah. new players yeah. can still be able to get in and create decks without having to invest too much money. And Damon, so, and Damon, when, as far as the list goes, I mean, do you actually see the list getting updated over time? And I mean, as, even as far as updating it, will it be like a, a particular time of the year that you update it or is it just whenever you guys 
notice there's a problem. I mean, and then, I mean, again, adding on to that, will rotation affect how cards are added and taken off this list? Well, I mean, absolutely. We're not going to have a list that has cards that have rotated out. That would be ridiculous. It's like, hey, here's, you know, three cards that are on this list and they've rotated. Right. Uh, why are they on the list? They're not even legal to play. Eh, don't worry about that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's absolute, <laughs> rotation is going to affect it. Um, as is release of new product. If a card is deemed to no longer be problematic, if the metagame has moved beyond, you know, reliance on that card in a major way across multiple decks, or if a deck, uh, archetype or build is seen significantly less play, then allowing a tool to go back to them in an attempt to keep things balanced uh, makes plenty of sense. Not every card on the list is there because it is overpowered or undercosted. Some of them are there because they um, they are crowding design space and that they are making other cards seen as unplayable. Uh, by the by the player base. So they're not even being you know, they're not even being experimented with. What I should why should I do B as long as I have option A? That list will that list will change and it'll change as we sort of deem as necessary. We're always listening to what the community has to say in regards to what they believe is overpowered or what they think is problematic. And our playtesters um, had a lot to do with the creation and decision of what cards went on this list. That's great to hear that it's going to be a, an interactive process. I think a lot of people will be really happy to hear that firstly, this has come about through listening to the community and consultation. I think that's a really fantastic thing for design mm-hmm. developers yep. to do, but also that you're going to be monitoring that on an ongoing basis and continuing that dialogue with players. I think that's a fantastic, really healthy thing. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times in your intro and in that last answer that some of these cards on the list have been crowding design and development space. And I think that's a really interesting angle that some players may not have thought of. Could you explain to us a little bit more how these cards might do that um, and how adding them to this list might free you up a little bit more in terms of your designs? Okay. Well, a a great example is uh, a card that I know that people have been questioning why it's on the list, and that's Yogg Pointo. The general belief that, well, Yogg hasn't really been a problem for, you know, a year or, or more. Uh, and the reason why is because the player base as a whole has ignored pretty much all of the code gates who are strength four or less. Mm. Because Yogg breaks everything for free at three or less. And at four, you're one data, su- uh, you know, data sucker token away or one round of parasite or running with, uh, what is it? Scrubber or, uh, ice carver, like there are so many ways of getting a four strength or even a five strength, frankly, within Yogg range that people just don't include those code gates in their deck with any kind of regularity. So Yogg kind of disappeared, but that's a whole huge segment of cards that have completely disappeared from play because of one card. Mm. And it means that for code gate design, you guys are quite restricted, I guess, then as well. well in terms oh, absolutely. Of balancing your power levels. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's not even a case we can like, oh, well, we'll just make code gates cheaper or we'll add more subroutines and be more taxing because Yogg breaks all of that for free. Yeah. And you've got your sort of Yogg, you've got your Yogg balancing and then you're balancing for all the other breakers and they, the two don't really marry exactly. very well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just quickly, Damon, uh, you, you mentioned that you guys uh, are often looking at the metagame, uh, particularly when 
you know, looking at something like the most wanted list. How do you go about monitoring the metagame? Are you just looking at results from big events like nationals and regionals across the world, or are you monitoring the the deck building websites to see what's popular, or you know, just looking at Facebook to see what the community is talking about? Um, it's less about deck building websites uh, because you know you're going to get a wide variety of stuff that's on there, and I don't particularly think that that is the best or easiest way to get a real view of what is being embraced. Uh, chatter on forums about this deck or that deck, taking a look at the various decks that have top 16 uh, in uh, regional and national events, uh, as well as having all the deck lists for um, both the ice, uh, the Ice cart or icebreaker and the um, uh, championship tournaments at Worlds, you know, sitting on my desk looking through. You know, Jaffer Patika at FFG went through and actually took all the cards for the top 16, you know, per deck and put them in a spreadsheet. And I can just sit there and go, oh, look, unsurprising, this card appears in every single corp deck. You know, this one appears in every single runner deck. Okay, well, this one is in every single one or runner deck or every single corp deck, but it's in 75% of them. You know, so it's it's really easy to be able to take a look at those numbers and see where the community is at. Not to mention the fact that I do have players in towns, uh, mostly in the U.S., but some in Canada and some in uh, a couple countries in Europe who send me their uh, top 16 from their their store championships, but also from their game night kit stores and just their general, like, hey, we're going to just run a tournament um, completely separated from any particular thing. So I have a lot of direct ties to the community, and I use those to help guide the decisions that I make. Excellent. Uh, so now let's, let's move into the list itself. So everyone uh, at home, uh, get a packet of corn chips and roll yourself a cigarette because we might be a few minutes uh, here. <laughs> packet of corn chips or roll yourself a cigarette. You, don't, you definitely don't oh, have to do uh, both. Don't, We're not encouraging people to smoke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also, you know, also don't do both, you know. Restrain yourself. <laughs> Pick one or the other. Um, we're going to start with the runner side. So, uh, so Damon, we'll just go through card by card, and uh, you, you can tell us maybe you know that your reasoning, but specifically behind each card, similar to what you said about Yog a moment ago. Um, so, we'll start with the first card in the runner list, which is uh, Cerberus Lady H1 from the Lunar Cycle card number ninety nine. So, Lady, um, a lot of us felt was sort of a direct answer to Eli. So, is that one of the reasons it was up there? Uh, well, that sort of like causes immediate um, looking at the corpse side also. So rather than discussing Lady directly in relation to Eli, um, uh, I will talk about it in regards to the faction that it's in. Lady is yeah, sure. Lady is one of the best barrier breakers, you know, out there. Admittedly it's a limited use. You know, those tokens go away and then you have to bring Lady back to hand, you have to trash her and then recycle her. Um, and in Shaper, it's not too difficult to do some combination of both. Um, just bringing her out by a test run, using all those tokens for a couple of runs, and then drawing her on your next turn when uh, she, because at the end of your turn she goes to the top of your deck, is a very viable strategy if you're running against a, you know, a corp deck that has a number of barriers out. The problem is, is that Shaper is not supposed to be good at breaking barriers. 
<laughs> well, code gates are supposed to be their thing. Code right? gates are supposed to be their thing. Are they supposed to be okay at barriers? They're supposed to be okay at barriers. Yeah. They're supposed to kind of suck at killers. Yeah. Uh, you know, at breaking through centuries. But having, having them have one of the best and most utilized barrier breakers is problematic from a color pie perspective. It allows Shaper to simply do too much. I guess what's interesting in that regard is uh, Criminal's second breaker is Decoders, is that correct? So they're, they're primary, they're, the one they're best at is Killers, and then Decoders is their second, similar to Shaper's second being Fractors. Passport, I guess, is quite an efficient but limited um, decoder. It, do you think that there's a comparison to be drawn there? I mean, I know Passport can't break remotes, but it's very efficient at breaking into centrals, which is what Criminals want to do a lot. Is there a reason why Lady stands out compared to something like Passport? Well, because Lady's restrictions are more of a nod of a restriction based on the other strengths that Shaper has. Again, the idea of like, hey, I can use this and I can break through relatively efficiently and then I just don't have a breaker anymore is great in concept. But in practice, the ability to just keep bringing that same Lady out again and again and again becomes problematic. Right. So it's too easy to work around the drawback in faction. Yes. Cool. Um, versus criminals, which there is no workaround. You just yep. can't use it against uh, remotes at all, period. So sure, they want to get in and they want to make it through the central servers, but if you're at game point and they've got you know something out there hidden by a code gate and there is a uh, end of the run subroutine onset code gate, you're, you're, you're just screwed. You are now diving into um, their R&D or into HQ or into archives with your fingers crossed, your toes crossed, knocking on wood and begging and pleading, you know, that you believe in the heart of the cards to draw, you know, that last agenda before they score. And that is Netrunner. That is how it should be. So, uh, moving on, next we've got uh, Clone Ship from Creation and Control, no, card number 38. Similar to some of the other cards on the list, Clone Ship did surprise a lot of people. Um, was this based purely on its ubiquity? Yeah, this is, this is well, uh, ubiquity and ease of use, ease of splash, and what such easy recursion does to the game. Clone Ship is one of those that I think probably should have just costed one more one more influence to begin with to make it a little bit harder to splash. Um, also, I think it's just ever so slightly too efficient even in Shaper, but not in a fashion that I think is necessarily overpowering, but one that really allows them to abuse a bunch of their other things. I guess one question that I have on Clone Ship is that a lot of the other cards on this list, Lady, which we've already discussed, Eli and Yogg, which are coming up, are really hyper-efficient versions of other things that already exist. You know, they're just better, um, so why wouldn't you include them in your deck? Whereas Clone Ship is really one of the only cards in Shaper and really the only card in the game that allows you um, paid ability speed or instant speed heap recursion. Um, program recursion, and there's no other card that really fills that role. Is taking that ability or making that ability harder for shapers to access, doesn't it restrict shapers a little bit in terms of what they do, rather than just forcing them to look for another option? That's a really good question, and I think that I would have to say the answer is no, not really. Um, I think that the fact that it's instant speed, the fact that it's only one to put into play, all really, really make it just a, do a little too much work. It makes the idea of running against ice that trashes your programs 
um, or the fear of losing programs through damage, just significantly less scary because you can bring it back whenever you need it. Uh, in some cases, I know a number of players who rather have things in the in their trash than in their hand or even in their deck because getting at instant speed is just more efficient than having to spend a click and guess what of the tools that they need to put into play before they start a run. Mm, and I guess compared with self-modifying code, which has a two cost to its activated ability, um, clone chip has a free activated ability, so of course if you have SMC and clone chip in play, you'd prefer to be getting the cards from your heap than your stack because you're saving two credits, which is sort of interesting and maybe not where you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, clone chip, I think, is really close to a perfect card um, on that top power level for its utility. Um, yeah. I wouldn't call clone chip broken. I would just say clone chip is, no, no. it, it serves just a little too much. Uh, it, it's a little too utilitarian for just a little bit too little investment. So is that, is clone chip one of the cards that you're sort of going to keep an eye on on the list? Is that one of the ones that it's lower on priority or is the is splashing out of faction really the big target and you want it to be three influence? I think that it's, it, well, Having it uh, so easily available to other factions is a bit problematic. Um, but I do think that um, it's one that I'm going to keep a constant eye on. Um, one of the things that I really uh, liked about the uh, Most Wanted list is the fact that it's not banned or restricted. You can include three in your deck if you want. Um, but, you know, you may also go, you know what, actually... With self-modifying code and test run, I can really just get away with two clone ships and I can use my influence somewhere else. So if we see people completely abandoning clone ship, then, you know, that's something to be concerned about. It's like, okay, well, you know, maybe it really isn't necessary. Maybe taking a look at some of these other things might be a better way just to keep things more evenly balanced. But if we see people just dropping down by one, clone chip and relying on other things within Shaper or just dropping down by one clone chip and using that influence for other cards and other decks, I would say that, you know, we probably hit it just about right. One include that people were sort of surprised to see on this list was Desperado, um, even though it was a powerhouse for the first year or maybe two years of the game. Um, it feels like one of the few consistent criminal tools left and one of the things that's keeping criminal alive as a faction at all in the competitive scene. Um, with so few blue decks on the top tables, are you concerned that this extra influence in faction could restrict their chances even further? No. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm really not concerned about that. Um, I think that the biggest hit to criminal has been the fact that courts have figured out how to play around Andy. And once Andy went away, so many people had convinced themselves so strongly that she was just the best criminal runner. And when Corpse started going, oh, well, really, all I got to worry about is account siphon spam. And as long as I can withstand Andy's first and maybe second turn, she's done. She's got nothing else that she can do. And I've got so many other things that I can still do. I just don't have to worry about good cards in a criminal deck. Yeah. So once she started to collapse underneath the hype that had been built around her, I think criminal just got abandoned. Um, Leela is fantastic. 
Um, I've, I've seen some amazing Ken decks, but they're not being taken particularly seriously by the metagame as a whole right now. And the ones that I've seen, most of them aren't actually using Desperado. So this is one where maybe you think the, the competitive group think has a way to go in terms of exploring the criminal card pool, maybe? Yeah. Um, Desperado's main issue is that the vast majority of people seem to disregard every other criminal console because it's just so good. I mean, that's a card that should have cost five or its ability should have been the first time you make a successful run rather than whenever you make a successful run. The card's too good. And as a result, Doppelganger gets ignored, Boxy gets ignored, Forger gets ignored, Logos gets ignored. And, you know, not by every player. There are definitely players out there who recognize that these other consoles are really quite good and the equivalent of consoles in other factions. It's just that, you know, hey, here's a couple of extra credits every single turn. How how do you turn that down? Mm. No, I certainly think the comparison you made that Doppelganger is very true. Doppelganger is a card I like very, very much ever since it first came out. But uh, obviously, just when holding it up next to a Desperado, you're just like, well, for the exact same cost, I'm getting a, a much more efficient ability, which is going to trigger far more often. So My question is, uh, you know, looking at Desperado, I understand that you guys are playtesting ahead of time. Were any of these cards, and I, this may be a little premature, but... Desperado really stands out to me to be to fit in this space. Could it be that some of these cards also are kind of a, a yellow, a warning sign because of future cards that are coming out that are make these existing cards more powerful? Not speaking specifically about any one card, yes. There is a little bit of future-proofing uh, that is going on in here. But for the most part, I try to not lean on that too heavily. Um it's easier to change the list once new cards come out and have uh, the decisions make sense than include things that seem to be completely out of left field. Um, the only cases where that's not true is when things are, you know, for like Mumbad, for example. Things in the first half of Mumbad are going to be out and are going to be played with and getting ahead of those made sense. So there may or may not be some specific card uh, interactions that were being considered um, but, you know, I, I can't and won't state what cards, if any, are very specific to that concept that are on the list. Uh, so, uh, moving on, the next card is uh, Parasite, Ag- again, another card from the core set. Uh, was the reasoning behind this one similar to that of Clone Ship? Uh, because uh, Ice Destruction seems to be sort of an Anarch kind of thing, but uh, was the lower influence perhaps making Parasite a bit more bit, bit too accessible to other factions? That's... Pretty accurate. Mostly it, it has to do with the idea that having the ability to, with, especially with parasites, um, and a little bit with self-modifying code, but to insta-kill, um, you know, some ice upon, upon the first run, uh, was just deemed, um, too stifling to the metagame. It takes a lot of the interaction out of the game, doesn't it? When runners can essentially ignore ice the first time it's raised. Yeah. 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 So another question, we, we, I mean, we've, as soon as we announced we were going to speak to you today, we've had a, an influx of questions from pretty much all over the world. But, but one of the questions that was posed to us, and I, I, I'm sorry, I forget who exactly asked, but why was Parasite chosen over something like Data Sucker, which a lot of people say is very, very ubiquitous and has splashed in quite a, across a lot of factions. And, and since the call said, people have said that they think that Data Sucker's influence is too low. I would agree. I, I, I would absolutely agree. Um, this list went back and forth between Parasite and Data Sucker. 
Um, and the choice was uh, made basically uh, for Parasite based on a on two playtesters, um, well-reasoned um, and, frankly, just well-supported arguments about uh, what impact Data Sucker has on uh, Anarch and their fixed breakers uh, versus Parasite uh, and Ice Destruction. And it was deemed that Ice Destruction outside of other factions was more of the issue than simply lowering the strength. So, for instance, there are 28 cards whose strength, uh, sorry, 28 ice whose strength is at one, uh, or zero. And the ability to just wipe those off of the board right away, um, without having the court have any opportunity to, you know, respond in any meaningful fashion is, is problematic. You know, that is a lot of cards affected by one card's ability to be used. And, Clearly, having both Parasite and Clone Ship on the list makes it significantly harder for non-Shaper, or it makes it harder for Shaper to include both of those tools in with, you know, limited effect, and for Anarch to include both of them in with limited effect. You know, and frankly, Criminal's got a lot of other tricks to handle ice. It doesn't need ice destruction, so it does very little to affect that. They can simply force you to res it at a point where, you know, you can't afford it and so it gets trashed or they can just bypass it entirely or after they've bypassed it, they can just de-res it again. So, you know, Criminal's got plenty of ways of dealing with problematic ice. So this is a really a thing that sort of, you know, taps down on the power level of Anarch and Shaper both in regards to ice destruction and the ease and ubiquity of it. The next card on the list... Damon is prepaid voice pad from the spin cycle card number 29. Um, Dave Hoyland and the uh, the UK crew wanted to know that wh- while uh, a lot of the cards in this list seem to have been targeted, again, because of their ubiquity or because they're too powerful uh, across a number of decks, um, the addition of prepaid voice pads seems to only really target the prepaid Kate lists. Um, did you think that deck is just way too prevalent in the meta at the moment? Personally... Yes, I think it is way too prevalent. Um, but that is not the reason why I, I added it. Um, I mean, I, I can't say that that didn't influence my decision because I'm human like everyone else, but I really try to keep my own personal beliefs, um, from directly impacting the design and development decisions I make for the game. Um, you know, because I'm a player just like everyone else, and I have things that I like and things that I don't like. I just happen to be in a place where, you know, I can do whatever I want within reason uh, in regards to making the game be what I want it to be. And I think that's a really tempting um, and dangerous place to be. So I really try and listen to my playtesters. I try and go to the other developers and designers that you know, work both in the LCG and in other departments, um, and seek out their thoughts and their opinions on these sorts of things, because I don't want my own personal biases to unduly impact the game. Um, so in this particular case, prepaid was not done because of my personal thoughts about how ubiquitous prepaid Kate is, and had much more to do with the fact that this card impacted uh, event creation 
uh, in a major fashion. I had to constantly look at, particularly with economy cards, it's like, okay, so this card is going to cost three and give, you know, X back. But with prepaid, it's going to cost as much as zero and give X back. And that's, that's really too good. Okay, well, then maybe this should be a double or, you know, we'll, let's just hold off on printing this card at all and we'll put it into slush and we'll wait for prepaid to rotate. Like, it's just, it was just affecting design decisions far too frequently. So there are a number of good cards over the last year or so that have been designed that aren't going to be seeing, um, play, uh, anytime soon or print even, I should say, or actually not even print, inclusion into a set to be printed because prepaid made them way too efficient. Uh, that makes heaps of sense. Um, I know that we covered YOG a little bit earlier, um, but in addition to what we discussed there, um, you know, a lot of people understand why it's on the list and that zero credit break abilities do unbalance the game and constrict your design. Uh, but Anarchs are now left with only Force of Nature in faction as a decoder, which does make it... I know, isn't Force of Nature awesome? But it does make it difficult to build regular rigs in faction, and, and not only that, uh, but it pushes AI breakers like Faust even further ahead of where they already were, which I think was already ahead of regular breakers, particularly in Anarch. Do you have any other plans to address cards like Faust and Eater, um, either through more AI hate cards or another Anarch code gate breaker potentially that's more limited in scope? I'm going to answer your question with a question. What do you think? Do you think that I'm likely to have thought about this and considered it and then made design decisions based on that? Or just, you know, cross my fingers and hope that everybody relies on force of nature and just accepts the, accepts the change? Based on your answer, I have a newfound confidence. Remember, I, yeah, remember, I play this game yeah. too and, you know, I can't say that I played at the same level as all of you because I'm not allowed to play in anything beyond a store championship. Whoa. That makes <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, the inside of tech, you're going to show up with all the stuff that you know is good because you designed it that way. No one else has figured it out yet. <laughs> now, how wild would that be? And, you know, four-time world champion, the designer of the game. No, that that's that's stupid. That's ridiculous. You know, and, and frankly, I'll be quite honest that while I, I really enjoy the game, playing it in the current metagame is actually really difficult for me. Um, I find myself forgetting about cards that exist because in my mind, they don't. They've already rotated. <laughs> or defending, yeah. <laughs> defending against tactics and being really super cautious, um, and altering my strategies based on cards that have not seen print yet. <laughs> yeah, that would be a weird world to live in. Yeah. Or, or even worse is, you know, not doing RTFC and thinking that the card I am playing or the card that my opponent is playing has a different ability than what is actually printed on there because the thing in my it's mind, <laughs> yes, was the thing that it was for the longest period of time and I forgot that it actually got, you know, beefed up or nerfed down in some fashion. Or, frankly, the name, you know, got assigned to a completely different yeah. card. Like, yeah. that happens sometimes. So, you know... What's steel skin? Sorry. Oh. <laughs> Damon, we, I'm just going to assume that you live in the future and your, your new nickname is Marty McFly. <laughs> Thank you? While we obviously don't have time to, to get it, to speculate on uh, why any number of cards might have been left off the list, but one of the cards we were uh, asked by a number of 
players from uh, both Malaysia and the, and the United States was uh, was there a reason why you felt Faust didn't deserve to be on the list? A lot of people have found that card to to be quite powerful and and to be really um, holding up a lot of decks in terms of overall strategies. Um, well, I think mostly it is a case of the card being, well, frankly, just so new. I don't think that the meta has had an opportunity to shake out yet. Um, I don't think that the corp decks have necessarily taken into account what it can do and what kinds of disadvantages it creates. Um, I would rather allow the community some time to adjust. Just give us a heads up on the few things we can exploit there for, to make Faust worse. Just, uh, we, won't, we won't publish it, just tell us. But how do you use Faust? Discard cards. Right. I, I draw my entire deck with Chaos Theory and get in anywhere I want. Sure, sure. But you're trashing cards from your grip. Well, the cards that you're trashing with clone shit gone are a little bit harder to get back. Those plays become a little bit easier to see, and any deck that is dealing damage is going to be a little bit more impactful. I think that there is some natural interplay there that can make things a little bit harder on Faust now that clone ship is going to be is going to have an opportunity cost with it. More snare. Uh, and more this is more, more snare. snare. Yeah, that, more snare. Yeah, that would actually do a, a fair amount of like, oh crap, you know, that was a little unexpected, and now I'm dealing with a situation where I just might die. Please let me have I have worse get pulled. Um, you know, it's it, it it's a little. It has its own balancing things that are going on in it. There is a distinct cost to using Faust. Well, Damon, I'm not sure how much you can um, change the design of upcoming cycles, but if there isn't a Wayland AI hate card coming out, yes. we'd desperately like to see one. <laughs> yes, please, the men, the, men, the men in green are just trying to do their jobs, and you're making it very hard. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I, I like Wayland. Um, I think that it's safe to say that they're going to be getting some fun tools, and they will have their day in the sun. Good to hear. It's good, very good to hear. Speaking of yeah. corpse. Yeah, yeah, moving on to the, the corpse side of the list. The first card is Architect from the Lunar Cycle, uh, card number 61. Um, this this card um, is, is propped up a lot of years because it was the first card that was designed by uh, one of the um, world champ, the first world champion, J- Jeremy Zwerin. Is that how you pronounce his name? Zwerin? Yeah, Jeremy Zwerin. Um, so uh, was this card chosen simply because of its prevalence in the Near Earth Hub decks? Uh, no, no. It was chosen because of its prevalence in most decks. Um, it was one of those cards that looking at the top 16 from reports from all over the world was just seen again and again and again. It does a lot of work, like a lot of work. Uh, it protects itself in a fashion that, you know, no other card, uh, at that point did and allowed For some really, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, allowed for some really awesome things to be done based on, you know, how you're building your deck. Uh, it's a great card. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's just above the curve, generally speaking, in power level. And it was very quickly recognized as such. And as an end result, it's in an excessive amount of decks. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they were looking at Architect, um, 
didn't realize how much of a face check penalty that was. I mean, it doesn't seem worse than, say, taking three damage from a Neural Katana, but it's just so much more powerful. Was was this one of the cards that was maybe on and off the list? I only asked because um, Mimic is widely regarded as one of the best uh, sentry breakers in the game, and it's a card that's played across a number of factions as well. And it does effectively just blank as we call you know about binary eye so when mimic is in play architect is essentially switched off that uh the prevalence of mimic have you umming and ahhing about architect at all or were you just really wanting to throw it on the list mimic and architect were both cards that were uh that were looked at and generally speaking the the decision came down to including architect and not including mimic i'm putting mimic on the list along with yog um and Parasite puts Anarch in a really not enviable place. Yeah. Um, and it's the same reason why Corroder, which was also, you know, being considered for the list, was uh, eventually not added. I mean, there were, there were a number of cards. A list uh, from, you know, at the, the players um, that I had talked to, uh, specifically the playtesters, um, had a, a, a decent-sized list of runner cards and corp cards. I would say um, probably about twice as long as what uh, made the most wanted list. Well, I'm glad to see Corroda's not on there. I mean, I, something has to be the best. Uh, I understand that, you know, Corroda stats might restrict Fractor design a little bit, but I'm, I'm glad to see that it's not on the list. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that eventually the right choice was not putting Mimic on and not putting Corroder on, but putting Architect on. And we'll, you know, we'll see. There's always the ability to add things or take things away, depending on how the metagame, you know, shakes out. Or how much mail you get from Jeremy's one about his card being on the list. <laughs> I don't have to get mail. Jeremy works at FFG now, so oh, well, he'll go. just walk over to my cube and go, dude, really? Why my card? <laughs> um, so the, the next card on the corp list is perhaps the poster boy for a lot of people it comes to having wanted a uh, restricted or even in their mind a banned list for probably the last... 18 to 24 months. I'm um, talking about AstroScript pilot program. A lot of players for a very long time have, have expressed that they think AstroScript is quote-unquote broken or too good um, and other people just like like me think it's fine because I really like winning <laughs> games. <laughs> so, so, so is AstroScript like a no-brainer? It was always going to be on the list? Yeah. yeah. Um, it is... I don't want to say it is solely responsible for the um, the population density that is NVN for the last two years, but it's probably solely responsible for the population density <laughs> for the last two years of NVN. Yes, um, yeah. it's just the card is I mean, very clearly the card is just the best. I mean, in my mind, very clearly the best agenda uh, available. A three two. That essentially makes the next one you play a 2-2, which of course makes the next one you play also a 2-2. Or heaven forbid that you manage to get one out really early in the game and then put a gear check out and get the second one out as a 3-2. Cause that makes the next one a 1-2. And that's just ridiculous. Um, it's so powerful. It feels great. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels great, except for when it's happening to you again and again and again. Uh, uh, even then, I'm like, yeah, this is sick, man. Look at this game. <laughs> you are a rare bird. Rare bird. I don't believe in banned lists, and, and I really am happy. I didn't express this earlier, but I'm really happy about the way this list has been designed. So um, if, if something was going to happen to Astro, this is fine. I believe in banned lists. I believe in restricted lists. I believe in card errata. I believe in what is now, you know, the most wanted list. Um, but believing in a thing and then wanting it are very different. Um, I believe in banning and I believe in errata. I don't ever want to ban a thing and I don't want to have to errata something. But if a card is just, you know, if a card is just running away, it's just dominating and tearing things up, um, something needs to be... You can't let your ego get in the way of recognizing that there was a mistake somewhere, either with the card or what the things um, that should be balancing the card out. Uh, one one other question we had from the uh, UK was that over the past few years, I guess, the, the metagame shifted with the card pool and uh, some people feel that it's balanced itself out between, you know, replicating perfections, rise and fall, etc., etc. Um, was there anything in particular that made you think that this action was particularly still needed on Astro and the list more generally. Was it the fact that AstroScript has been consistently played at that top level in large numbers? Uh, well, not just that AstroScript has been consistently played, um, because pretty much every single deck list that I can remember ever seeing in NBN had AstroScript times three. Um, there was no other agenda that when it was included in a list that it was always times three. You know, it didn't matter if it was breaking news, it didn't matter You know, it, it didn't matter what it was. There was not one other agenda at the time that was always times three. But also there was no, you know, since uh, since the first, uh, after the first Worlds, since then NBN has been the, pretty much the most represented corporation. And I feel a significant part of that has to do with this one card no that makes complete sense to me well i've heard this argument before on you know in a couple of locations and this isn't really going to relate to a card in the list sorry to deviate just a, a smidgen there seems to be some discussion about you know um mbn being such a highly represented faction um across the board it doesn't appear this list has anything to really kind of nail down um something for like a mbn decks running scorch and traffic accident um, when looking at that, I'm sure you guys considered everything, but did it seem like there were enough counters to this already to where it didn't justify um, any of those cards getting added to the list, or was there another reason? Scorch is already pretty expensive in influence. Um, if you want to dedicate three slots of your deck to Scorched, and you're willing to pay all of the influence for it, then, you know, I think that more power to you should be the general, you know, the general belief. And poor green decks, if, if Scorch was on the list. Hey? Yeah. yeah, but, you know, I'll be honest, yeah. Scorch was one of the cards that had been marked as something to consider. And mostly it just has to do with how punishing it can be to making a simple mistake. That's not to say that I was seriously considering it, but it was a card that had been, you know, brought up. And mostly it had to do with it being in NBN decks. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's, it's for influence. Turning it into five influence was going to be a major hit, but if it's a huge 
piece of what your deck is supposed to do, you're certainly willing to take it. Yeah, and, and having Astro Script and Sansan on there means that it's very difficult to include those two and Scorched yeah. in most decks. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and that was what was deemed to make Scorched Earth not needed to be put on the list because of NBN decks. If Waylon wants to run around with three Scorched, three traffic accidents, and then bring in um, you know, Data Raven and Midseason's replacements and stuff for their tag and bag decks, well we clearly like we're like, hey, go for it. You know, yay Wayland. But NBN being able to fast advance and kill was just you know, too much, too easy, and was very clearly, um, you know, dominating the meta mindset. You know, it was just being represented. Various butcher shop variations had been, you know, dominating for you know the population density for so long, as well as you know fast advance. So this really put you in a position. It was like, well, I can't depend entirely on the easy kill and have a constant ability to Britain out with scoring seven points in just a couple of turns. Uh, so the, the next card on the corp list, Eli 1.0 from the Genesis cycle, is uh, also one that did surprise a lot of people. I, I think people uh, tended to overlook uh, the ubiquity of Eli because it's, uh, while the card's obviously very powerful, it's not, you know, uh, air quotes, exciting. It's not splashy. Like something yeah. like, it's not splashy. It's not like, it's kind of just like, well, I mean, three influence, so I need a barrier slot, so I'm going to put Eli in here because that's what everyone does because Eli's very efficient. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just something that ends the run and the runner can click through it and, you know, that's not hugely exciting. Was Eli on the list simply because it invalidates so many other barriers and that same sort of, you know, cost and strength slot? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, there are a lot of good to decent um, barriers that cost, you know, three, uh, and or you know are within, you know, maybe one strength or so that are just ignored because they are, you know, they're just more expensive. Um, they have maybe one fewer subroutine. Eli's ability to, you know, be a a, a quick, you know, into the run, having it twice, and having the runner being forced to click through it. Um, you know, if I can put out one card that for three credits means that you lose half of your turn in order to be able to run through uh, this server, uh, I would, I would absolutely, I would absolutely play that. If it was an event. That it's like, hey, pay three and the runner loses half of their turn, you know, in operation. I would, I would, I would play that. And a lot of people obviously have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so this is just a case where we're encouraging people to take a look at other cards. Um, not to mention the fact that it does kind of restrict design space. If I'm going to create a barrier that's going to be played, it needs to look as favorable as Eli, and frankly, that's really hard to do. Oh, I mean, I'm really glad to see Eli on the list simply because um, it, it might mean that one of my other favorite barriers, which is very, very comparable, uh, Marcus 1.0, might see a bit more play, and I really like Marcus. Yeah, so, and I that was that was the thing, honestly, that made me very comfortable with putting Eli on the list, is that there was another barrier out there that was very similar in numbers that was a an equitable choice for a player to make, um, that by hitting Eli, it was not going to like, oh my god, now there is literally nothing in here that I can do in this cost slot. I have to absolutely use cards that are very categorically 
worse. Cool. Um, on the next card on the list is NAPD contracts from the spin cycle, which was obviously added purely, purely for flavor reasons. Well, <laughs> no, I have an issue with the flavor of NAPD yeah. contracts being on this list, but we'll we'll come back to that. Later. <laughs> um, my question is, given how powerful the agendas in Haspiroid and NBN are, um, and the fact that those two factions have fast advance options, etc., but also have some good forfeit twos. Um, it seems to me that adding influence to NAPD effectively um, hurts Wayland particularly, but also Jinteki. Do you agree, and do you have any other plans to address this by giving those two factions access to other two-point agenda options? I'm going to disagree. Okay. Um, I think that quite possibly the best 4-2 in the game is in Jinteki. I think um, Misei is a remarkable agenda. Yeah, sorry, I should clarify. What I, what I meant was, I also think Oaktown is one of the best 4 for 2s in the game, but the... I was going to say that next. <laughs> is, yeah, ...is with depth of two-point agendas. Like, I was, I was putting together a Wayland deck and trying to cut my NAPDs, and beyond Oaktown and Atlas, there's really not another 4 for 2 you can play that doesn't give you bad pub. Needless to say, um, I think that that is a thing that you can trust to change. So, I mean, without um, spoiling too much from the future, we, we've heard in the past... Um, I, I think from Lucas that uh, there were never any plans to print any more three for twos. Uh, he said at the time because he felt that even a blank three for two would be played. Uh, is it likely we'll see three for twos now? Wouldn't it? We've got something that balances out some of the issues that surrounded the the problem with you know printing more three for twos uh, in the future. Um, I am not of the opinion that we won't ever see three for twos. Um, I think okay. that it is really a case uh, by case basis. What is the three? Uh, the three for two. What is the faction that it would be going in? What is its drawback? Um, but I would say that three for twos at this particular point have proven to be um, overly strong. Um, it would take some. It would, it would require some definite. Um, changes in the card pool and metagame for more three for twos uh, to be printed. One other question on NAPD contracts specifically. Um, a, a few people were sort of surprised to see this on the list um, because it's not necessarily ubiquitous and there have been some other options recently, particularly Global Food Initiative I have in mind, that have seen NAPD drop off a little bit, um, as well as Valencia uh, being around in the bad pub really affecting NAPD negatively. Um, is this one that may come off the list at some point in your mind, or is it just an auto-lock include? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I would say half of the cards on this list could potentially come off at some point. Half of them, I think, are just very clearly too good for what it is that they do or for the faction that they're in, and they are going to stay. They're almost certainly going to stay on the list. Um, yep. But the other half has to do with where the meta game is and what the card pool's at. And so are always potentially one tournament season away from, you know, being removed from the list. Uh, so, sure, NAPD contract absolutely is one that will be looked at to see, you know, if it can come off. But it has, you know, it, it has been a really strong card in some decks for a while now and been doing a lot of work and there are in fact you know other cards that could be played and we are looking forward to them being you know examined a little bit more uh, 
a little bit more thoroughly. Uh, so, yeah, the last card on the corp list is Sans Sans City Grid. Again, another card from the core set. Uh, very comparable to Astro Script Pilot Program. And while you did touch a little bit earlier on why Astro and Sans Sans are both on the list, uh, that was obviously for uh, the inclusion of Scorched and a lot of MBN decks, are there any other reasons why you felt that Sans Sans really had to stand alone and be on this list as well? I, I think that that would be the primary thing. I could absolutely say, like, well, here is a concern, and here is a concern, and here is, you know, where if I put a Sansan out naked, the runner has got to, you know, pay serious attention to it. And it's, you know, one click to force them to spend a click and a fair amount of credits to get rid of it. Um, it's it's an instant threat on the table that the runner must respect. And I think that having it on the list will encourage people to look to other cards um, and their deck composition. If you want to go in on fast advance, you know, you're still certainly able to do so. There not, nothing on this list is going to discourage that, but it is going to cause you to take a look at what your plan B is going to be. The other thing you can do if you see Sans Sans City Grid is you just acknowledge it and just, uh, you know, face the fact that you're never going to pay five credits and, and just lose the game which is what I tend to do a lot in the hopes that I'm just going to win off R&D by getting lucky. I'm not going to ever interact with that Sans Sans City Grid. I'm going to win somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, that's my little tip from it, from from, uh, from me to everybody. On how to knows. lose with grace. Um, yeah. <laughs> on how to lose with grace. And, and then be like, damn, Sans Sans City Grid is broken. Yeah. <laughs> I wish someone would ban that. Um, yeah, it's okay. Sans Sans is one of those cards that, like, put it this way. Between Astro Script Pilot Program and Sans Sans City Grid, one of those is obviously the one that might get taken off the list if NBN, you know, stops having such, you know, a huge, um, popularity in tournament play, especially in, you know, the top cut. And it doesn't start with A. And it doesn't start with A. <laughs> yeah. Its initials are not AstroScript Pilot Program. Yeah. I, I mean, another reason I think um, an NBN might drop off is with the inclusion of Architect and Eli in here. You know, NBN's really going to have to fall back on their own ice pool, which uh, is, is left wanting in a lot of regards when considering the most popular NBN uh, ID at the moment, which doesn't really, you know, pump their, their ice or anything like that. It doesn't have a lot of synergy with the ice. So maybe we will. It would be good and fresh for the game, so we'll, we'll find out. And you, you have to remember is that this is a living card game. You know, the card pool is going to change um, based on releases, based on rotation. Tournament play is going to change based on releases and rotation, as well as perception of what the best cards are and the best decks, as well as the most wanted list, which will also change based on the card pool releases rotation and what the perceived best cards and best decks are. This, um, like the restricted list, is always intended to be a tool to allow for um, greater design ability uh, on my part as well as the deck builder's part. We, we talked about um, the emission of Faust on the runner side and uh, there's there's a glaring emission on the corpse side in a lot of people's uh, opinion. Um, it's sort of the elephant in the room. Uh, you've you've made your opinion on Jackson Howard uh, fairly public recently on Twitter, and I don't really want to get into the darker corners of the Twitter sphere here. But <laughs> I mean, a lot a lot of people, g given uh, we know how you feel about Jackson Howard, a lot of people were um, surprised not to see 
Jackson Howard included on the corpse side. So what were some of the reasonings there? I mean, it must have been on the short list. But you did also mention your personal preferences you were trying to avoid, so that may be part yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, actually, Jackson was never on the list. Yeah. Really? Never. I did not consider putting Jackson on the list once. Um, again, it's the distinction between my personal beliefs, personal preferences, and what I believe is my responsibility to the game and to the players. So, like, I can go on for days. <laughs> I can go on for days why I think Jackson is a crutch that the players don't need anymore. That's, that's, that's Damon Stone talking. That is not, you know, Damon Stone lead developer talking. So is Damon Stone lead developer have something in mind for when Jackson rotates out? <laughs> like Jackson 2.0? <laughs> was he cloned? <laughs> and released again in Wayland? Well, if he was cloned, it would make much more sense for Jinteki, wouldn't it? Nah, uh, Wayland got a lot of money. It's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Needless to say, uh, the various things that Jackson does will always be present in the game. They are very unlikely to see um, reintroduction in the same fashion. One card that does so many things and shows up so many weak spots in corp play is unlikely to happen. The players are just better now. Please make it instant speed. That's my <laughs> only request. <laughs> we, you probably already inferred my thoughts on things that are instant speed based on the clone chip Aww. Uh, discussion. Aww. So. <laughs> Well, just, just make it, like, non-influence. <laughs> That's not <laughs> non-influence. That's not to say that, you know, it won't be, or that one or two of them won't be, but very clearly, if it's going to be instant speed... Uh, any card that's going to be instant speed is going to need to be looked at very carefully in regards to balance, because there's just no way... You know, this is not a game that involves responses. So anything that is instant speed means that there is no way your opponent can handle whatever it is. And I think that, I think that the strength between not having stacks, not doing, you know, batch results of, you know, first in, last out kinds of things, um, is that it makes proactive play better. Like, you are a better player if you can predict what your opponent is going to do and outmaneuver them first, rather than the, I have this answer card in my hand or in play, and I'm just going to wait for you to do your thing, and then I'm going to trigger mine in response. And so, when you get to the spot of instant speed, you start getting back to that, that place of, well, I've got a thing and I can do it, and there's just nothing that you can do, and no amount of pre-planning that you had can account for it. Totally understand that on a general level. Um, I guess in terms of agendas in archives, it always just feels so miserable to lose to milling or having to discard things into archives that you always just yeah. want to have something a bit more powerful there. Not to mention yeah. the not to mention how obnoxious Keyhole Eater is. I absolutely yeah. love that. My Reyna Keyhole Eater deck is one of my favorite runner oh. decks, I'll be completely oh. honest. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of those. I, I, des I designed those cards to work together, specifically in Reyna. So, yeah, I am one of those. Fair enough. One thing that I've been really impressed with throughout the past few years in terms of Lucas's design um, is that he did a really good job arresting power creep and the temptation of power creep and uh, that extends to you I guess as well as a, as a designer throughout that period um, we've seen that 
I guess, from the number of cards on the most wanted list that are from the core set that are still far and away the most powerful. That list might encourage some diversity in decks, uh, but I guess the reality moving forward is that there still aren't that many cards in the card pool that fill each role in the game on the core band runner side and within each faction. Um, there are even fewer that are competitive considering that the design in the first couple of cycles was quite conservative in power level uh, on the whole. Um, I guess that means that there's a lot of room post-rotation when you're designing the, the future cycles to up the power level slightly in some areas where you know the waters were tested. I'm thinking like Wayland Advanceable Ice, things like that. When you're replacing those sorts of cycles that are going to be moving out, uh, what's your approach going to be in terms of replacing cards? Are you going to look f- sometimes to like-for-like like replacements in terms of the area of the card pool they sit in, or are you just designing on a blank canvas? Um, it's it's a bit of both. Uh, card effects that are rotating out that are deemed necessary will continue to see uh, see cards printed that fill similar niches. You mentioned, sorry, just to interrupt there, to clarify, you you mentioned earlier criminals having the ability to derez ice, for example, something like emergency shutdown. Is that one of those? I I know you can't get too specific, but um, things which are central to factions, if I frame it that way, is that something that, the sorts of things that you might see redesigned? I I will answer that this way. Each faction has a slice of pie about what effects are are part of their core design. And by core design, I don't, I'm not referring to the core set in any way. Just literally, these are things that we have assigned this faction to be good at or to be part of um, their identity as a faction. Cards that rotate out that fill those niches will continue to be replaced with other cards that also fill those niches. Recognizing the difference between this card does this effect and it's gone away so we're going to get another one that does that same effect, is very unlikely. And I don't even mean the same numbers. Um, I mean, like, literally, A, this card does A, um, but it does it in the way of B. And now this card does it does A, but it does it in the way of C. I mean, this card fills a very general conceptual space. So other cards filling that same conceptual space will continue to be printed. But, you know, for example, and this is not specific, it's just an example, the thought of de-resing ice is a form of, a very specific form of ice hate um, that is not destruction-oriented. If that is part of the criminal pie and not specifically de-resing, then you will get other cards that will act as non-ice destruction hate cards. You may not see something that also derezzes ice. I would be very leery to say that any one given effect is definitive of what a faction's strength or power is and say that the role that it fills is the thing that you should be looking at. Uh, Another question, uh, Dame, which I I think will probably only warrant a brief answer, uh, is um, changing of wireless net pavilion to now be unique. Uh, Is this purely just because this card is clearly very, very powerful in multiples? Yes, um, the card, uh, as it has been said before, the card was tested as unique. Um, and I'm not 100% sure at what point that got changed, but it was after playtest. It may have been simply a case of um, playtester feedback on it had been kind of lukewarm and 
to sex it up a bit. Maybe it was made non-unique. Or it could have just been a case where, you know, the unique symbol is a keystroke, and that keystroke did not make it into the final print version. Like, I was not doing development at that point, and when that card uh, was getting um, put in, I believe I was neck deep in a completely different project at the time. So I was not privy to why that change was made. I had been part of the playtesting, but I was not part of uh, the the final development of the card. So I, I could not answer that. Um, but clearly we've seen now how strong it is in multiples and how empowering it is of, you know, DLR decks, especially coming out of Val. Uh, so this was a way of being able to allow cor- uh, allow corp decks to have the ability to fight on a more even footing. Obviously, Damon, we are uh, almost exclusively a, a podcast about competitive play. We do branch quite a lot into the you know community aspects and things like that. So one of the things we've been very passionate ever since it was mentioned oh, probably over a year ago now was the implementation of a Netrunner judge program equivalent. Could you give us any insight onto um, how that's going? Not a bit. <laughs> um, that's- You're not allowed to? Or- <laughs> Uh, I am, I am not allowed to because I'm pretty much only allowed to talk about the things that we have very explicitly already made comments on publicly. Um, but also I couldn't if I wanted to because that's organized play and I am design. So that is, I literally have no idea what, what the guys over there are doing in regards to that sort of thing. Um, I know that they come over and they ask us questions and we are happy to give them, you know, answers. But at the end of the day, they are in a completely different department than we are. They have their own manager. They have their own VP that he answers to. And we're completely different, you know, chains of command. So I, I couldn't answer that if I wanted to. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I just uh, had one more question. It's sort of peripherally related to the most wanted list, but not to the cards. Just going forward, I suppose, in tournaments, some people have expressed concern that you know, newer players who aren't up to date with FAQs, etc., may not be aware of the most wanted list before they turn up to a tournament. Do you have any advice for local communities and gaming groups on how to manage that issue moving forward? Well, I would I would first start off with a, a statement to people who want to become competitive players. If you're going to show up to an event of any type, um, it behooves you to know what the event is. If you're going to go to a tournament, uh, for any game, knowing if there is an FAQ and knowing if there are specific tournament rules is, I think, just doing due diligence for your own enjoyment. And so if you're going to, if you're going to go into competitive, if you're going to play competitive Scrabble, you should probably read the rules and check on the tournament that you're going to to see what form of dictionary they're going to be using because that is going to determine whether or not you're going to succeed. Uh, so yeah. same thing with Netrunner. Read the tournament rules, read the floor rules, read the FAQ, and do all of that before you go to your first tournament. Um, that will give you the absolute best opportunity to enjoy yourself, as well as your best opportunity to win. Um, as to what can communities do to ensure that, tell players to read the tournament rules, read the floor <laughs> rules, and read the FAQ. Because that is going to be the thing that ensures that they're going to have the best time. They're going to have made a deck that is legal. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just the thing that needs to happen. You know, people talk about, 
um, player accessibility and barriers to entry. And the reality is, you know, going from a casual game to a competitive version of that same game and not being aware of, you know, card errata or what is, you know, being thought of as the decks that you're most likely to run up against um, is going to definitely, you know, impact your level of fun. Um, so, you know, I, I am a big believer in you know, the more you know in, re in regards to this sort of thing. From a tournament organizer standpoint, I would also say that it would be my responsibility to ensure that everybody who heard about the event was also aware that these documents exist. Like if I had a Facebook um, announcement or a website that was saying this thing was going on or in-store announcements, I would also have you know, the FAQ printed for people to look at. I would have links to our support page, which would have the tourney rules and the floor rules and the FAQ on, you know, the Facebook group announcement as well as on, you know, my website because I would want people to come prepared. Um, and the last thing, of course, is that if someone came unprepared and they had a deck that was illegal, I would give them uh, an opportunity to change their deck in between games. You know, that falls definitely within the floor, the floor rules. Like, oh, your deck is illegal, you know, in between. If you can make it legal, you know, go for it. If, if you can't, then, you know. I think that's a good mm. around. I just have uh, one more question, Dan, which a lot of people in the community have been gagging for an answer to. And you can either answer with yes, no, or I can't say. But a lot of people... Chaos Theory is not the daughter <laughs> of Kate and Noise. We'll just lay that well, to mean, rest right now. I, I didn't uh, didn't even know that was a question. Sure, now we know. Uh, the, the mystery is solved. It, it, go, it, goes back, it goes back a little way. Someone was saying that they needed to know for a school project. So, well, yeah. that well, person... It's, you know, it's an old answer. inside joke. Very good. I hope you uh, listen to the winning agenda. Is there in development, or is anyone talking about at all, a uh, Android role-playing game? Again, that's not a thing that I can even begin to say. That's a cheeky little question, Brian. <laughs> just a cheeky one. And, hey, a lot of people really want to know. They're just, they're just Ever since the Worlds of Android was announced, people are like, oh my god, they're going to do an RPG and I'm going to lose my shit and I can roleplay as Chaos Theory. Who's now no, the daughter? No, not the daughter. Stop spreading yeah. rumors. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, no, they can decide who she's the daughter of. Actually, you'll get an opportunity to see uh, Chaos Theory's parents at Ooh. some point. Yes. Ooh, yes. there's your little spoiler. Yes. Should be a co- oh, you can make them a corp card. What what interesting like oh how emotional. Like Lady <laughs> Shizana. Oh my god. Oh, hey, we got this. Chaos <laughs> Theory's mother or mother's is Sunny and her partner. Uh, anyway, no, no, anyway, no, no, anyway. No, 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 you're I, let's not, let's not take Damon's time off of this. <laughs> Damon lives for this, Jesse. <laughs> uh, I kind of do. Um, so <laughs> the person, the, the person to ask, uh, so that she can tell you no. It, that she can't answer it would be uh, <laughs> Katrina Ostender. She is the IP. Uh, she she is our IP guru for pretty much all of our stuff, um, and she's the one who you know is responsible for the IP book existing as a thing, um, along with Dan Clark. Ask either of those two so that they can tell you that they can't tell you. Excellent. So hopefully now those people know know where to go with those <laughs> questions. Uh, all right. Uh, any other questions or anything you wanted to say, Damon, before we wrap up? I would love to play an Android RPG. So if anybody has any um, uh, homebrews, send them my yeah, way. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I mean, if you guys need a fiction writer, I'm sure I'll be able to uh, free up my very, very hectic schedule to. Get, like, oh, I'm not talking about from FFG. I mean, just me, literally, Damon <laughs> Stone. Once, yeah. yeah, if you come up with oh, a homebrew, I want to play. Line after the 
<laughs> episode, <laughs> episode ends. We'll, we'll start working on it right now. Thank you so much for coming on, Damon. We really appreciate you uh, coming on, especially on such short notice, to uh, talk about mainly the most wanted list and other things as well. If uh, people want to get in contact with you and tell you why they're going to quit the game because of you directly, <laughs> how can they do that? Oh, well, that's actually pretty easy. They can send me an email at L-L-I-T-Z-S-I-N-G-E-R <laughs> at Fantasy. <laughs> oh, I kid, I kid. Oh, that was a funny joke. That was a <laughs> really you. good story. Uh, I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can reach me at Twitter at ilogos.com. Or iLogos, you know, at Twitter. So you can, you know, shoot me your tweets and I'll summarily ignore them or drink the tears, uh, just depending on, on what my mood is in the day. Um, in all, in all seriousness, if player, if, if people do have comments and questions and concerns, send them to the rules question link on, uh, our forum's, uh, website. Our, we- our website's forum link has a rules questions. And you can send me any comments or critiques or questions there. Thanks so much for being up front too, Damon. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate the in-depth answers that you were yeah, able to yeah. give for all of the cards on the most wanted list. I think you've clarified a lot of things mm-hmm. for me and probably for all our listeners as well. A lot of people as well. Yeah, and while we understand there are things you, c- you can't talk about too deeply, uh, we-, we think you did a really great job of, of giving us quite a lot of information despite that. Okay, great. Um, I hope to see you guys at Gen Con. Yep. Yeah, I'll be there, so happy to see you too. Uh, in the meantime, if anyone wants to get in contact with us, you can do so at thewinningagenda at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Winning Agenda, and our Facebook page is The Winning Agenda, as Damon can tell you because he's a huge fan. Um, That's correct. Until next week, guys, we'll, we'll see you every Monday. So thanks so much, and thanks so much again to Damon for coming on. Thanks, thanks. guys. Thank you, guys. Right. Cheers. Bye-bye.